Good morning, everybody. How are you today? Today, Bezat Hashem, we'll be learning some of Dachav Zayin in Masechah Shachim. That's what the rest of the world is learning. But we've had quite the week. We started with illness. We had a shortened day for Rosh and a shortened day for the ice scraping. And so our objective is to get to Chav Zayin. Hopefully, uh, we'll do some homework. We'll do a double portion of Man on Erev Shabbos for Shabbos. And uh, we'll be caught up. And this, uh, we won't, in the future, we'll be uh, caught up. But Baruch Hashem, we do not give up. We continue on Chavav for the first time since we've started. Amud Aleph. We did not turn the page. We have three lines up from the wide lines um, in Chavav Amud Aleph, where it says Mishum Tehavu Trumas Hadeshen Uvigdei Kehuna Shnei Suvim Habayin Keechad Bechol Shnei Suvim Habayin Keechad En Melamdin. Okay, what was what was the topic over here? The topic over here was we were trying to understand, as you might recall, there was a Machlokas Abayin Rabbah. Today we're going to be discussing two sort of extreme converse cases. The case that we're discussing up until now is you are experiencing Hana'a Baal Korcho, right? Because let's say we say that Chametz on Pesach is Asr Behana. It's one of those things that are Asr Behana. Okay? So if something is Asr Behana, so then how can sometimes, if the Hana is unavoidable, are you going to be Chayev uh, for having Hana'a? On, right against your will. That's, question, that's the question we're addressing. We're gonna we're gonna ask the opposite question later, which is, what if you intentionally have hana but indirect hana from something? So, for example, you take something that's also hana and use it as fuel, and so and then you heat something up. So that's sort of an indirect hana. You're doing it intentionally, but is it really hana? So in in the case that we're going to learn later, you're removing the hana a little bit. You're diminishing the hana, but you're doing it on purpose. Here, the hana is not on purpose, the Hana is in full force, but you're trying to diminish the Kavana a little bit. So very, very in- interesting analysis of cases where you don't have full Kavana and full effect of the Hana. Are you Chayev or are you not? So we knew that, we know there was a Machlokas Abayah in Rava. Rava said that Bli Kavana you still Chayev, and Abayah says that it's Motor. So we said um, that in the case of Trumas Hadeshen was a very unique case. We talked about Me'ila. We said that Me'ila is something where we talked about the smell Right, really, the, really, the place to, to start. I'll say it outside. Is from the statement of Barkapara. Barkapara mentioned the idea that that sound and sight and smell are things that do not have the misappropriation iser, which we call meila. Okay, so if you see, let's say the kadosh kadoshim, as we learned yesterday, or if you smell, let's say the ketores, so then perhaps you're not going to be chayev for meila, which is misappropriation of things that are hectic. And the next thing that we did was challenge the notion. We said that sight and sound perhaps are not things that have any substance or insubstantial, but smell perhaps is substantial because we brought a source that said that the reason why we are not chayev, right, for the reach of something that is burnt is because its purpose has already been served. But really, smell has is really a substantial hana, and sight and sound are insubstantial, so that that one smell is different than the other two. And then we said, if that's true, can it really be true that once an item has already served its purpose in the base Hamikdash, that it's no longer subject to Me'ila? So now we're, we find ourselves deep in this concept of Me'ila, of what is the nature of the Isser of Me'ila. When a object is being used for the purpose of Avoda in the base Hamikdash, is it only then that it's also for Me'ila? We already learned that the outside walls of the Heichal, perhaps if you use them for shade, it's not going to be also from Mila, so we already learned that Mila has to be done in the way that it was intended to be used. But is it only while it's being used? Once that item, let's say, is burnt up and is no longer extant, it's no longer there, and you use it, is that not a violation of Mila? So the Gemara wanted to say that Trumas Hadeshen is something that the Pasuk explicitly says is something where you have an Isra of Me'ila still, and, and yet, Trumas Hadeshen, by definition, is you are collecting the ashes that have been left over from all the sacrifices. And so, 
presumably the sacrifices have already done their purpose, and still there's an Isra Me'ila collecting the ashes. Now, of course, what the Gemara is going to end up saying is that there's a special pasuk that teaches you that Trumas Adeshin, that those ashes are particularly spelled out in the pasuk as having the concept of Me'ila. They don't necessarily reflect on all the other things that are going on in the base of Mikdash. It is possible, in fact, to say that all the other things, you would only have the violation of misappropriation of Me'ila while those things were still functional. And that Trumas Adeshin is an outlier. But at this point in the Gemara, we're trying to show that there are two things namely Truma Sadeshan, as we just mentioned, and also the Big Day Kahuna, the clothing that the Kohen, the Kohen Gadol wore in Yom Kippur is what we're talking about in this case, where he wore extra begadim, and we say that those Truma Sadeshan and Big Day Kahuna are things that even after they've been used, you are not allowed to have Hana from them. So that's where we pick up. And so now the Gemara is saying, that What this means is that when you have one Pasuk, so the way the Torah works, the way exegesis works, um, right, is that if you have one Pasuk and it's an outlier Shita, let's say you only had Truma Sadeshan, for example. So usually we learn that to mean that that one Pasuk is reflecting on the rest of the Torah, such that if Truma Sadeshan is an example of something where uh, after, even after we use it in the Avodah, there would still be an Isra Me'ila, that would actually reflect on all of other Avodahs in the base of Mikdash. They also would be subject to the Isra Me'ila even after they serve their purpose. However, once you have a second Pasuk, so then two Psukim that say the same thing, now they only reflect on each other, and now they're going to limit this, the, each other to say that this concept of Me'ila still being around, even after they're being used, is now only limited to those two exceptions, right? So it may be counterintuitive, but again, if you only have one Pasuk, it reflects on everything. If you have two Psukim, then you can say, okay, now, now these two are outliers. They're just reflecting off of each other, and, and they do not reflect on all the other Avodas in the base of Mekdash. That, 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 that's how that works. So, so long as we have two Psukim teaching you the same thing, we're going to say that they are exceptions. If we have only one, we're going to say it has to be a general rule. That's what it means when it says, When you have two psukim that teach you the same thing, they don't reflect on everything else. Okay, so what are the two psukim? So it says the Gemara, The we already brought the Pasuk to explain that the, the, the concept that we're saying, that the Me'ila doesn't go beyond the Avodah. The, the Big Day Kehuna is because it says, Right? We say there's a Pasuk that says that after you've already worn, the, uh, the, after the Kohen Gadol has already worn the Big Day Kehuna, he has to put it away, Geniza that it says just leave them there, put it away, which implies that they can no longer be used. You shouldn't get Hana from those Big Day Kahuna anymore. Oh, so now you have the same concept by Big Day Kahuna, same concept of Truma Sedeshan, and therefore you see, because of the Tupsukim, that they only teach on each other, they don't reflect on other Avodas with respect to this issue of Me'ila. Now, the Gemara says, however, this concept of the Big Day Kahuna have to be put away is only is a controversial concept that only the Rabbanon hold that. El Rabbi Daisa, the Palagalayu, the Amar Aval Ruin Hen Lachoin Hedjos, right? Ma, what are you going to say to him? In other words, Rabbi Dosa disagrees with the Rabbanon. He says that actually we're going to have hand me downs, the hand me down halacha. After all, as Rashi explains, the Kohen Gadol does wear eight begadim on Yom Kippur, but four of those begadim, right, which Rashi illuminate, um, enumerates the Ketanis, the Mikmasayin, the Mitznefes, the Abne, right, and the belt and the, and the undergarments and all these other things. And, and those things are actually the same four Big Day Kahuna that a regular Kohen wears when he's walking around in the base of Mikdash. And therefore, it would be a shame to not use those four. So in other words, perhaps four of the eight that are only used on Yom Kippur by the Kohen Gadol, those are going to be put away. But the rest of the Begadim are actually usable. You could just throw it in the, right, base of Mikdash laundry and reuse them during the year. And that's what Rabbi Dosa says. He says that we actually can use them year-round. So if that's the case, right, therefore, what does the Pasuk therefore mean when it says that you can't use the rest? So he says, 
that those big day kahuna, those four items, as Rashi explained, should not be used again on Yom Kippur. That after Yom Kippur, they go out of circulation, out of Yom Kippur circulation, and into the regular year circulation that regular kahanim can wear. So then the Gemara says, according to this interpretation of Rabbi Dosa, where there's no longer because now the pasuk of Hinicham Sham doesn't teach you categorically that the big day kahuna can no longer be used for uh, after the avodah has been done. It teaches you something else that they just that we take them out of the Yom Kippur circulation and put them into regular circulation. So according to this interpretation of of Mendoza uh, of Rebbe Dosa, my um, Now you have right the idea that you only have one pasuk left. You only have Truma because the pasuk by the big day kahuna is not in fact teaching the same thing. Truma becomes a pasuk in the middle of right floating in the middle and teaching you to the rest of the Torah. So the Gemara now seeks a second pasuk to match up with Truma as follows. Mishum Dahavi Truma says the Gemara the Egla Arufa. What is this Egla Arufa? Um, the Torah itself says explicitly this concept of you find some uh, corpse in between two cities. Uh, generally, we f- consider ourselves responsible for all humanity. There is a procedure. This procedure involves measuring which city the, the corpse is closer to. The elders of the city come out and they make a declaration that they perhaps should have taken care of this stranger right uh, better. And there's a procedure where you go down with the Egla Arufa, which is a calf, and you actually break the calf's neck, and there in the valley, the calf must be buried, where you go and you do this procedure. Um, it's a very interesting sugya of Egla Arufa. For our purposes, the point is that in the sugya of Egla Arufa, right, there is the idea of burying the Egla there. It says by the Egla Arufa, the Arfu Sham Es Egla, that where you do the procedure with the calf, you do it Sham over there, which we learn to mean that after you finished with the Egla Arufa, you can't have any Hana from it, so to speak, but rather you have to bury it there and not have any Hana. So we see the concept of Egla Arufa, which normally you would say, well, that's a unique idea, but you can't have Hana from this calf that you use for the procedure, can't have Hana uh, ceremony, I guess I'll call it, you can't have Hana afterwards, that's a very interesting halacha. Now, when you couple it with the Allah of Truma Sadeshin, perhaps you could say that this would be true a Kula, that once you have one of these ceremonial uh, items that you use, you can no longer use it anymore, and it's Asr Bahana. It's interesting that Egla Rufa would be uh, brought here as an example, simply because it's Kadosh, right? But it's not really something that you consider as an Avoda in the Beis HaMikdash. But the, but the Torah does compare Egla Rufa to Kachim in other uh, contexts, and therefore, this is why we are bringing it as an example. It can be compared to Truma Sadeshin here. Okay. So, if you have a Pasuk both by Truma Sadeshin and by Egla Rufa, then you can say the two Psukim that say the same thing, like Truma Sadeshin and Egla Rufa, only teach on each other, and we're still left, therefore, with the idea that there is no concept of Me'ila, um, that the, the concept of Me'ila can, in fact, exist even after something is burned up. Okay. So the Gemara, however, asks, Okay, but the concept itself of saying that when two psukim teach you the same thing, you can't learn to anything else, that exegesis method, right, that way of interpreting psukim is in itself controversial, right? As the Gemara says, there are, in fact, opinions that say that when you have two psukim that teach you the same thing, that you can still learn it after the rest of the Torah. So this whole search for the second pasuk, according to that Manda Amar, is a fool's errand because we're not going to learn anything from that anyways. So according to that opinion, what are you going to say? How are you going to not extend the law Right, the, the Allah that we learned by Egla Rufa and by Trimus Adeshan, that once you've done the Avoda, right, how are you going to avoid extending it to the rest of the Kola So says the Gemara finally, Tremi Utek Sivi. Now, the by Egla Rufa and by the Trimus Adeshan, there are very specific words that are triggers that teach you specifically with these two contexts that they are unique and should not be applied. In other words, the Torah itself is telling you that these, these halachas should not be applied to the rest of the Torah Kula. Um, the Gemara learns it from 
the psukim, it, it's leaving the actual limud a little bit ambiguous, or it's not really spelling it out, but it says ksiv v'samo, right? With regards to Truma Sedeshan, had the word v'samo, as we learned, and ksiv ha'arufa. And with regards to the egla ha'arufa, it says ha'arufa. And, and, and then the, right, so then the Mepharshim go on to explain how those two uh, words and the way that they are written, right, ha'arufa, how that actually teaches you that the Torah is going out of his way to teach you that you can't learn anything out of these two psukim, even in a context where they are, whether you hold that two psukim teach um, that it's not supposed to be extended to the rest of the Torah, or even if you hold that you can extend to the rest of the Torah. In this case, you're not going to be able to extend the halacha to the rest of the Torah. You're going to keep it local to Egla Rufa and Truma Sedeshen, and that is implied in the Psukim. The Torah is going out of its way to teach you that you can't learn out of these. Okay, so now we're three lines up from the bottom of Chachavah Medalef, and the Gemara is going to go back to that interesting machlokas of Abaya and Rava. As you might recall, there was an Ika de Ami, there was two positions. Rava held, right, that Rabbi Yehuda Right, Abaye was Andrew was was Andrew uh, singer hardliner within within uh, within Rabbi Yehuda as follows. Abaye had an amazing chiddush. He said that that um, well, I would say that yeah, Abaye had an amazing chiddush. He said that when we said it in Hilchas Shabbos, Davar She'enu Miskavein is Usser. He said that when Rabbi Yehuda said that Davar She'enu Miskavein is Usser, what he meant was like Andrew says um, that intention intent can't matter. That the reason why Darush Ain Miskavin is Usr is because after all what matters, and Andrew tells me this all the time, is not what your intention is, what matters is what your actions are. And so that is a biased interpretation of Rebihuda by Darush Ain Miskavin. So when it comes to Ilkha Shabbos, that becomes a true Khumra. Right? That even though you didn't intend to do the malacha, and even though we usually say Malacha's Makshavis, as long as you did the malacha, you're going to be Usr, according to Rabbi Yehuda. It's going to be Chayev. But when it comes to this inadvertent hana, it becomes an unbelievable kula. Because what it means is, in a case where you had no choice, but to have the Hana. And as Andrew points out, how could you have a choice, right? If you're placed in a situation that you didn't expect or you had no choice and all of a sudden you smell. Now we're saying that smell is in fact a particular, right, it's a substantial Hana. All of a sudden a smell wafts into the room. What, how, how are you supposed to control the Hana there? So maybe you have to redefine Hana. Maybe you have to have Kavana for the Hana. You know, Ein Ladavarsof, right? You can really learn, um, we can learn, spend, spend a week on every daf over here. But be that as it may, you can't control the Hana. Rabbi Yehuda is going to say, we don't care about your Kavana with the Hana. If you had no choice but to be there, eat after, as we call it, so then you're going to be, you're going to be putter. You're going to be putter. So we use this concept of Dabrashen and being usher in a coolest sense when it comes to inadvertent Hana. We say that inadvertent Hana, Abaye understands within Rabbi Yehuda, your Kavana doesn't matter. All that matters is that you control what you could control, which is whether you're going to be there or not. Amazing. So if you had no choice over being there, you're going to be putter. That was Abaye's position. Rav, however, said, no. When we said that Rabbi Yehuda holds Davar Shem Miskavin is Usr, that was just a Chumr within Shabbos. It was Lachmir, not Lachakil. That was just to say that even if you don't have a Kavana, you're going to be culpable because you, after all, you did the act. Okay. So now we're within this Ikad Amri and within, we're in Rava's position that even though it's unavoidable, right, it's going to still be Usr, right, as long as you had Kavana, right? So Abaye is going to disagree with this, but Rava is going to have a proof from the following case. What's the case? Tashma. Ichnisa Larifka. We're still, Arifka is a team of cows, and these cows are tied together. Okay, and they're doing some threshing. Okay, so you're tying together cows and you're doing some threshing. Now, we're still in the world over here of Egla Arufa. It says in the Pasuk of Egla Arufa, that in order to qualify as a calf, okay, in order to qualify as a calf that's going to be used for Egla Arufa, it has to be a calf that didn't work a day in its life. Okay, there is, however, a conundrum, a problem, because what happens to calves, they usually are 
going to be nursing from their mother, from the mother cow. Okay. And this nursing is so continuous that if the cow happens to be, if the mother is a working mom, not all moms are stay-at-home moms. Some cow moms are working moms. So if the cow mom is a working mom, that means that there's going to be moments where the calf is going to be literally tied, and this was a procedure sort of that they did. They would have a contraption. They would literally tie the calf to the mom so that he could continue nursing while mom is working. Okay, but they, it wasn't like she wasn't carrying the calf. The calf was walking alongside her and nursing while every while mom is doing her threshing. While mom cow is doing her threshing. Now, by definition, calf, albeit his dainty feet, he's doing some threshing of his own, right? Because he's walking alongside mom. Is that considered a calf that never worked a day in its life or not? The Gemara is going to point out this is dependent on the intention, in fact, of the calf owner. If the calf owner had only intent to do this because he had no choice. Right? Either way, he has no choice. The calf needs to be near his mom. If it's not going to nurse, the calf could expire. Okay? But the question is, did the owner have intent for, to benefit from the calf's little feet threshing on the, on the, uh, on, 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 uh, threshing here, on the grain, as we'll see. So here we go. Okay, so the, the, that's called hitching it on to the mom, and he's got the calf going, and he's going to be nursing. Okay? Vidasha. And in this case, that means that if the threshing of the calf was incidental, kishera. So that means that if you only had incidental, right, threshing from the calf, then the calf, excuse me, still qualifies for, to be used as an egg rufa. It's not considered real work. Because, Andrew, if you enjoy what you do for a living, you never work a day in your life. So this calf didn't even notice that it was working. It just thought that it was nursing. Okay. Now, however, if the reason why you tied the calf to the cow, you had intention, what? A dual intention, that it nurse and also that it thresh, oh, then Pesula, then that calf is no longer going to be valid for Negla Rufa because the owner, this is based off of the owner's intent for the calf to do the threshing. Aha. Says the Gemara, this is the case where low after in the sense that he had no choice, the owner, to, but to attach the calf to its mom because the calf needs to continue to nurse. That's the only way it's going to work with a working cow mom. However, it depends on the kavana. Here you had a case where low after and he was he had kavana, and look at this. At this in the, if he had kavana, we say that the calf is in fact going to be usher based off of his kavana. The ketani pesula, and the brisa says that the calf is in fact unfit to be used as an egla rusa, uh, a rufa, right? So that's mashma like rava. That kavana is what makes it usher. Even when it is unavoidable. Remember, Abaye had a tremendous Kiddush that just by virtue of being unavoidable, it's not going to be usher irrespective of Kavana. But here we see, if you don't have Kavana, it's mutter. If you have Kavana, it's usher. It's mashma like Rava. However, the Gemara rejects that. It says, Shiny Hasam Dixiv Asher La Ubadba. Look at the grammar here. The Pasuk says, with regards to Egla Rufa, that work should not be done on it. Ah, work should not be done. It's referring to the work. In other words, we don't care in that case whether the work was done intentionally or not it's just a question of whether the work was done if at the end of the day so there we have explicitly saying if at the end of the day work was done we're going to say that this eglarufa is puzzle for this calf is puzzle for eglarufa irrespective of the intention of the bow so the gemara asks well if all we care is whether the work was done so even in the first case of the brisa, where the owner had no intention of the threshing, it should still be usher because after all, the threshing was done, right? So if that's what the pasuk is teaching you. Okay, so we turn to Chavavam days. We're not even going to look at the time because we just keep going one day at a time here. The Gemara says, "Halo damya elalaha, shachan alea of kishera alalezachar psula." The Gemara answers the distinction between the first case of the brisa, where the threshing was incidental, and the second case of the brisa, where it was intentional. We're going to compare it now to a paraduma. We know that the uh, paraduma and the Eglarufa do have this in common. Both of them are supposed to never have worked a day in their life, okay? With the paraduma, we have a source in Mishnayas and Para about the paraduma, um, and by the way, we have Xerah Shava uh, comparing the paraduma to the Eglarufa, right? So from that Xerah Shava, we can easily say that whatever applies to one would apply to the other. Well, with respect to the paraduma in the Mishnayas and Para, we learn that if what, what is considered, we're defining here, what is considered a hard day's work, okay? So, Right, we have white collar and blue collar over here. Let's say, 
um, some bird we noticed one day was using the paraduma as a pedestal, right? Just kind of chill, chilling on, on this paraduma. Is that considered work? Says the mission, no, that's not work. That's fine. Nobody would call that work. Okay. So Allah le'azachah However, the paraduma can never be mounted by a bull. That is work for her, and she will no longer be fit to be a paraduma. That is, that would be tragic because paraduma is very rare indeed, as we know. And so we really have to keep that paraduma very isolated. Okay. Uh, Gemara asks, my taima. Right? What would be the reason for this difference between the bird and the bull over here by the paraduma? So Amar Papa, Iksiv Avad, Ukrinan Avad, Ad Avid Ba Ihu. So Rapapa is explaining now the way the Pasik is constructed, how it lends itself to, to learn this halacha of the bird and the bull as follows. That if the Pasik has said Avad, that it has to be intentional work on behalf of the owner of the cow, so then Ad Avid Ba Ihu. Then the only way that this paraduma would ever become puzzle would be if you had some intentional right uh, work that the owner did on purpose. Okay? Iksiv ubad vikrinan ubad. If the pasuk would have said ubad, right? If that would have been the grammar, which means that the work was done, then we would say afilumi meila nami. Then we would say that anything that was done, right, would make it unfit, regardless of the owner's intention. However, hashad dechsev avad ukrinan ubad. So says Rapapa, Here is a very interesting pasuk. The word is written avad, which implies the intent of the owner. Ukrinan ubad, and it's read ubad, which means the work being done irrespective of the owner's intent. And for that, we learn something very unique as follows. Says the Gemara, ubad dumya avad. In order to balance these two implications of the pasuk, we have to say that the kind of work that's going to make a paraduma puzzle is work that's done incidentally. So again, the owner is neither placing a bird on this paraduma nor is he really placing the bull on the paraduma. Right? Both of them are happening incidentally. However, However, this incidental work that has to take place has to be something which the owner would approve of. And therefore, once incidental work that the owner uh, would approve of takes place, that's how you learn out the pasuk from the reading avad, but, um, rather writing avad, but reading ubad, right? Once this incidental work is, being, is happening in a way that the owner would approve of, then it is usher. So if a bird lands on the par, the owner doesn't get anything out of it. So therefore, it's going to be mutter. It's still going to be a, a valid paraduma. However, if it's mounted by a bull, that the owner usually is something, it is something that the owner approves of, and therefore it's going to become possible for a paraduma. Birnbaum and Tostos both freaked out because they said, this is the second part, so they said, the owner has this paraduma, the very last thing the owner wants is for a bull to come mount the paraduma. He's taking every precaution to avoid the scenario. How could you call this Nikale? His, his value just plummeted, right? He lost this incredible value of the paraduma by being mounted by the cow. How is that a case that the owner would approve of it? Of course, he would never approve of this. And Tostos has to work around it by simply saying that even though he would not approve it, certainly in a paraduma, it is generally considered a good thing. So the activity in its own merits is considered a nikhalei. It's a... Uh, look, Ayin uh, Sham, the second Tosos of Chavavah Mbez, addresses that issue. Uh, be that as it may, for our purposes, we bring it then, therefore, back to Egla Arufa. To, in the case of the Egla Arufa, therefore, if the owner, it's going to end up mattering. If the owner is pleased with the fact that the calf is threshing in, in the sense of nikhalei, that he cares, so then we're going to say that it's Asr. So that's the second case of the Bricer, right? Where the owner actually has a dual intent. However, in the first case, where the owner is not pleased, he doesn't has no intention, it's all incidental, all he cares is that the calf is going to suckle, and so therefore we see that we do have, just like by Egla Rufa, it's read into the psukim. This, this Kiddush is baked into the psukim, the distinction between the incidental activity that the Egla Rufa and the Paraduma do, as opposed to that the, that the actual master cares about, as opposed to intentional, if it's Intentional tusser, if it's incidental, then it's still valid to be an egla rufa or a para aduma. Well, be that as it may, right, neither of them teach you Rava's position that when you have intent to have hana, that you're chayev, because these are sukim that are exclusive to para aduma and egla rufa. These are, these are very uniquely mudim that don't reflect uh, in general on the concept of, you know, keeping our eye on the ball here, they don't reflect on the concept of whether hana, how hana plays into whether something is usser. They are unique to those, uh, to those singular cases. So, 
we keep searching. Another proof for Rav's position that Kavana makes it Aser seven lines down, Chabad and Beis, as follows. Tashma. Aveda, lo yishtachena, lo agabi mita, lo agabi magod. Ah, Elam etzias. Ah, we're going back to sixth grade. Very good. Or fifth grade, or wherever, wherever uh, country you're in. Okay. So, what happens in Elam etzias? You find an Aveda. Right? You find a lost object. Now, lost object, as you might recall from the Mishnahis and Elam etzias, as a finder sets lost object, it gives you a certain amount of obligation. Right? The obligation is to uh, have regular maintenance of the objects. You have to, so if you have books and, and, and scrolls, you can't just let them rot and get all moldy. You have to spread them out once in a while. Right? You find Vagadim, you have to spread them out once in a while. You've got to air them out. Right? That's part of your obligation of somebody who's holding on for, to a lost object until you find its, right, its rightful owner. Okay? So in Andrew's case, right, he finds uh, Acuras. He needs to make sure they get their oil changed and, and, and it doesn't break down. He finds them on the side of the road. It's not for now. So, so Tashma. So in this case, right, you found the garment and you want to spread it over a bed or you want to spread it over a peg. That certainly you should do to air it out. However, you can't do it for your own needs. We'll see what would be a scenario of that. In other words, kavana for a finder of a lost object matters. You're supposed to have the kavana of maintain, maintaining the object, not kavana of personal use. Unbelievable. So says the, right. So that's what the Bryce says. For your own needs. Okay, so what can you do? The same action, spreading it out, spreading it out over bed, spreading it out over, over peg. The same action is going to be either mutter or usser to do, depending on the kavana of the finder. So if the finder is intending to do it for the benefit of the item that he found, it's going to be mutter. If he's doing it for the benefit of his own benefit, it's going to be usser. Incredible. Okay, let's throw in a wrinkle. You have a tablecloth now, and you have an opportunity to spread it out. Hey! Everybody wins. This is a win-win. Uh, the, the, the rightful owner of this tablecloth is going to be so happy because I aired out his tablecloth. And I'm going to be so happy because I get to use the tablecloth for my guests. Says the Bryson, no. Wow. Once you have guests, okay, then you can't even spread it out whether you want to do it for the sake of uh, the, the garment or for your own personal use. So we actually see this all over the place. Um, what is this rice supposed to teach us with respect to how kavana plays into the Isra? So at this point, the Gemara thinks that the fact that your kavana in the in first part of the Brisa makes the difference whether the same action with this found item is also or mutter reflects on Rava's position. It, it shows you that kavana matters, that if you have no choice but to spread it out, but your kavana is to get hana in a way that you're not supposed to, it's going to be usher by virtue of your kavana. That's what the Gemara thinks it's, it's learning from it. However, the Gemara rejects it immediately. It says, shiny hasam. The kali lay, right, over there in the case of guests, or in the case where you're using for your own self, uh, for your own self. So what is it like when you have guests? So, right, we had Rabbi Isaacson, the Rosh Hashiva next door to me. Whenever you'd have guys, there was always some house damage, right? When you have the Yeshiva guys over, Kali like means it's going to destroy it. So, in other words, certainly baked into the halachas of Elam Etzias are, is the, when you're trying to do something for the purpose of the object, is this idea that if you're going to do certainly anything that's going to potentially be destructive to the object, certainly that you cannot do. And so to spread it out, in, to show off for your guests, the Kali like, that is a destructive act, and that's why it's for sure, Asr. It doesn't necessarily have to do with your intention. Says the Gemara, Imashim once you spread out this beautiful tablecloth that you found, either you're going to um, incur the evil eye of all those who are going to be jealous of this item, thereby cursing the item and eventually condemning it to some sort of damage, or you're literally going to have ganavim. They're always looking out for a good tablecloth, and they're going to see it through the window, and they're going to actually steal it. So by exposing Right, too much exposure to this kind of um, fancy garment that you found is actually always going to be damaging to it, and it's for that reason that you're supposed to only spread it out in private and only for the purpose of the garment, but not necessarily your intention. Your intention is not necessarily what makes it usher. It could be just the context of when you use it that makes it usher. Okay.
Okay, now, that was an Iker de Amri. Now, you might recall that the first version that we said about the Machlokas Abayi and Rava had Rava uh, being straight up Rabbi Shimon. Let's see, let's see. Tashma. We have a Mishnah, we already learned it in Masechah Shabbos. It, it's, but it's really a Mishnah that comes from Kilaim. It has to do with the merchants, the cloth merchants in the Shuk. The cloth merchants used to sell Kilaim. So when they used to sell Kinaim, right, they used to have to have mannequins, but sometimes cloth merchants would actually wear what they're selling in order to sell. Now, you're obviously, you're not allowed to wear Kilaim. So what would be the halacha if you're wearing Kilaim and you're doing the action, which is usr, but without the kavana of getting any hana from that action? Would it still be usr? So you see how that's relevant, right? So here's the case. You might recall this from Shabbos. This was a different concern that we were talking about then, but you could sell it, Kedarkan. Right? So let's say... Um, so as the Mishnah does, you have no intention to have Hanah from it. So you have your cooling mask, right, in the, in the summer, your cooling face mask in the summer, if you don't have Kavana, right, to, for it to cool, or you have your warming face mask in the winter, you don't have Kavana for it to warm. So if you don't have Kavana to have the actual Hanah that a cloth generally generates, so then perhaps it's not going to be Yasser. In fact, that's what the Mishnah seems to imply over there in Kilayim, that you're not going to have that Yasser. And the Mishnah then goes on to explain, Those who are discreet, right, and truly pious, they don't get involved with this idea of like, whether your intention matters or not. They simply have it on the rack or on the mannequin behind them, and they don't get into this discussion of is it mutter, is it us, or are we actually violating the They just don't wear it all together, okay. Says, the, says now the Gemara, therefore, over here, shari. Unbelievable. This is reflecting on our first case over here. Remember, Rava had said he was straight up Rabbi Shimon. Rabbi Shimon says, right, the davr she'enim is is mutter. That means that all that matters is kavana, according to the first lashon. Which means, if you're mechavein, it's aser. If you're not mechavein, it's mutter. See how that reflects here. Here we have a case where the merchants, it's not a case of efsher, Andrew. It's efsher. The merchants have a plan B. They could, in fact, use the mannequin. They could just hang it. They don't have to wear it. And yet they choose to wear it. And still the Mishnah Kalim says that despite the fact that they wear it by choice, as long as they don't have the kavana to get the from it, it's still going to be mutter. This is straight up Rabbi Shimon, where all that matters is kavana. That was Rabbi Shita within Rabbi Shimon. So we're using this Mishnah in Kalim to teach you that we hold that Rava by Rabbi Shimon. Um, right? Uh, I, I, I think I, I said, everything I said was correct. Um, however, that, it's, it's the, that was a bias sheet within Rabbi Shimon, right? Because Rava was the one that said it was Usr, and a bias is the one that said it was Mutter. And so therefore we said that it was a bias that said it was, right, Mutter. Ah. Oh. Mechavein, Shari, right? So a would say, right, like Rabbi Shimon, that even though you, could, you have a choice of putting it on the rack, as long as you don't have the Kavana, it's going to be mutter. That is straight up Abaye within Rabbi Shimon, says the Gemara, that Mishnah in Kilaim is in fact a final reputation, refutation of the Lishna Kama of the Brisa. Um, it's a refutation of Rava, and it's Mashmah, the only Kavana matters, according to Rabbi Shimon, to Yufta, to Yufta, that is in fact a valid refutation. So if we're going according to the Lishna Kama here, we have a source that Abaye is right, that it's where we go according to Rabbi Shimon, and all that matters is Kavana. So now we are where we hope to finish yesterday. Uh, 16 lines up in the two dots in the middle of the page and we are learning the converse case, the exact opposite case now. Up until now, we finished the beautiful and incredible nuanced sugya of how much does Kavana matter with respect to the Isra of Hana. Now we're going to discuss how much does Hana matter. The intensity of Hana. Let's see. This is, you have full intent, but it's like second and third degree Hana. Very, very interesting sugya. That comes from Velo Yasikba. What we say about Velo Yasikba? What we said, let's say you have chametz and you're burning it. Okay, so you're burning your chametz. We know that chametz is in fact also Hana. So you have the Asr Ba'na Chametz burning. That's fine. That, that's a scenario that could happen. Well, can you not fry an egg on it? Okay. Can you use this burning? Well, why not? So there's two ways you could look at it. You could say, well, this is a Isr Hana, and if I'm going to use something that's Asr Ba'na as fuel, then by using the fire that's generated from said fuel, I'm actually violating getting Hana from that fuel. 
Or you could say that at the moment that the fuel is happening, it's like the chemistry of combustion is such that at the moment that the fuel is being generated, the actual item that's fueling it is being consumed, such that by definition, every flame that's cooking or doing whatever is in fact not really hana from the fuel because the fuel is already not in existence the moment that it's generating a flame. Okay, so this is an interesting idea. So let's see. Tanarban. The Bryce says as follows. Tanar sheyesiku beklipei orla. So this is an iser hana. We know that orla is also barna. Oh, bekashin shekileyakarim, as we discussed already this week, that the straw of kileyakarim, kileyakarim, and orla are two things that we already discussed at the beginning of the week are also barna. Okay. So, but however, you used an oven, and this was your fuel. These things are supposed to be also barna. So interesting. Bryce says chadash yutatz yashan yutzan. That if you have a new oven, then the new oven has to be shattered. You've ruined your oven now by using the sister not as fuel. Rashi explains, because he did a Gemar Malacha. We already learned this earlier already. I think it was in Shabbos when we talked about the ovens the first time in Parakakira. That ovens uh, had a certain uh, manufacturing step where the last step was this like last burnout. And that was the Gemar Malacha of the oven. That was like a glaze, we'll call it, right? That, that made these, these ovens, right, um, usable. So obviously, if the last step of glaze making the oven usable is done with a fuel that's Asr Bahana, then you can see why the entire oven is now destroyed and needs to be destroyed. That's called Hadash. Yashan, however, this has already been glazed, it's already been used, it's an old oven, Yutsan, from, right, Sanon, cold. You have to allow the oven to be cool, to, to be cooled. You can't use it while it's still warm from that fuel. However, once it cools down, the oven itself is still usable and you can continue to use it. So, Afabos Apas. Okay, so now you have this oven and let's say you not, you use, right, you use fuel that's Asr Bahana and you actually were baking something, bread, in that oven with this fuel. So, up until now we talked about the oven. What about the bread? Can you eat the bread? So you see how it's more removed, right? You have the fuel that lit fire in the oven and the bread's in there. So is this Isr Hana of the fuel going to go all the way to, so as to penetrate the bread? Let's see. And again, right, interestingly, this is, to do, this is full Kavana. This has to do with third degree, right, Isr Hana. How does that work? So, Rebbe says that, that you can't eat the bread. Chacham says you can't. Okay. However, the Bryce says that everybody agrees that once it's on coals, it's going to be mutter. Right, you gotta go to Eretz Preshi, where they, they give you camel rides and they pretend like it's Avram treating you and then he makes the pizza bread on the coals. Anyway, what's the point of the coals? The coals is that the fuel is already gone. At that point, it's already consumed, and therefore that's gonna be mutter because it's no longer a hana from the actual something that's never usher. By the time something is cold, as Rashi explains, it's totally, totally um, no longer the original item, and then it's already gonna be okay. So in other words, coals of something that's usher by hana are in fact usable already at that point as a fuel. But then the Gemara points out, uh, a stira, right, between this brisa we just learned and another brisa, Hatanya, but we already learned, we have an explicit brisa against our brisa. Our brisa says that if the oven is, right, that, that if the oven is new, then we're going to have to shatter it if we use a Asurbanah uh, fuel. The other brisa says that no, that even if it's a new oven, you could still don't have to shatter it, you still only have to let it cool. So the Gemara is going to have to address the contradiction between these two brises, and it says, no, Kasha, Harebi, Baharabanan. That's a machlokas between Rebbe and Rabbanon. And the Rabbanon, in fact, hold that the new oven also only needs to be cooled. And again, it's because the fire is coming from what? The part of the fuel that's already been consumed. Oh, once the fire is coming from the part of the fuel that's already consumed, so then it doesn't matter whether it's a newer or an old oven. This is not an Isar Hana. Isar Hana, it's not an Isar Hana by definition, because the fire is a byproduct of the combustion and the already the fact that this um, Isar Hana has already been consumed. Okay, so now, is the Gemara satisfied with this resolution? No. Let's try to finish the page. Uh-oh. So, can we say, let's see, let's see. Are, are you going to say, let's talk about this first halacha here. How is Rebbe saying that, that the improvement, right, of the wood is in the bread? How is Rebbe saying that the bread is also? Can you, can you say that this idea of zevzeh garim is something that Rebbe holds? What's zevzeh garim? Zevzeh garim is when you have to combine, um, additional factors in an additive, additive fashion in order to make something usser. So we're going to see in the Hamshach what this means. And a low kasha. Harabli Yezer, Harabanan. 
that in fact, the first Brysa holds that a new oven has to be shattered because Rabbi Eliezer holds that when you have um, Zev and Zev, something that's Usr and something that's a Mutter together, it can actually create a grand total of Isr. And Ha Rabbanan, Rabbanan don't do this math. How so? So, hi Rabbi Eliezer, where do we see this sheet does? And now the Gemara is actually going to explain what we're talking about. Elam Rabbi Eliezer to Sa'or, maybe it's talking about the concept of Sa'or. It's not, there's a mission oral that teaches you. Sa'or shall chulin vishal truma shanafla toch isa. Right? Ve'ain bezek de lahachmet, ve'ain bezek de lahachmet. Right? So you have truma, right? And you have chulin. You're not supposed to mix them together. And yet, in making the bread, you used, right, the Sa'or of, of them both. And neither of them, in and of themselves, would have been able to result in bread. However, however, together, they did create a bread. So there, Rabbi Yezer said that he's actually going to follow whichever came last. In other words, he's going to use the mutter sa'or, and he's going to add the osr sa'or, and whichever came last, he's going to put additive, additive together, and he's going to osr it. However, Chachamim are going to say, by virtue of the fact that one is mutter and one is osr, we can never say that the additive is osr, and therefore we don't say zevzegorim, and for that reason, if as long as the osr portion in and of itself could not have caused the rising of the dough, we're going to say that it's mutter. Until we find that only one ingredient could be machmet. And it was Abaye who explained that Zev Zagorm could be Usr because the Mishnah was talking about the case where Eliezer only allows it if the last, right, where the coin anticipated that and moved away the Usr. But if he did not do that, he's going to say that's Usr, and that's why we hold that it's Usr. We made it to today's Dach. Everybody had a good Shabbos. We should return next week in good health um, and be able to continue with the Dach in sync.